evangelism. When some of us hear that word, we just tense right up. Our palms become sweaty. We might even start to shake. We hear the word evangelism, and for most of us, we're just terrified. There's a variety of reasons for it. Some of us aren't sure where to start. Where do we start when we're trying to have a conversation with someone about the things of God? Some of us are nervous that someone may ask us a question that we don't have an answer to. What are we going to do if they ask us something that we don't know the answer to? And some of us want to avoid any type of controversial subject matter altogether. We just don't want to go there ever in a conversation. Doesn't matter if it's religion, doesn't matter if it's politics. And so we hear the word evangelism, and for many of us, it's a terrifying thought. And yet, it's something that the Lord has called us to. God longs for us to actually be able to share our faith with other people. And so this week, as we come to this part of our series in hitting the mark, marks of a healthy church, we're looking at what it means to disciple make. How do we make disciples? How has God called us to do it? Well, after Jesus has been raised to life again in Matthew 28, he says these words. Then Jesus came to them, that's the disciples, and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and I am with you always to the very end of the age. In his resurrected body, after Jesus has died for our sin and been raised to life again, he calls us to go into all the world and make disciples. The, the term go is as you're on your way, as you go to the grocery store, as you go to work, as you go to a family outing, as you go home, maybe with non-Christian family members in your house, as you go, make disciples. As you're on your way, make disciples. And it's intentional that you're to do it, not just in the places where you naturally intentionally go, but also around the world. We're to go and to make disciples of this world, of all nations. In the Gospel of John, after Jesus has come back to life again, Jesus says this, As the Father has sent me, now I send you. And he wants us to know that we're a sent people, just as he was sent with purpose from the Father to declare his glory among us so that we could be reconciled to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. He now wants us to have the same privilege of leading people to faith in him. And so evangelism is something that God wants to become part of the natural ebb and flow of our life. Sharing our faith and the work of God in our life is something that he longs for us to do naturally and continually. And so how do we go about it? How is it that we're to be an evangelistic people? Well, as I move there, I want you to know that some things have changed. First, the starting point has shifted. The starting point has shifted. 50 years ago in our culture, if you said the words the Bible said, almost everyone in the room would agree with you the Bible was a good source, a great document to be able to rely on if you said the Bible said. They may not have all agreed it was the Word of God, but they would have believed it was a good book. Even in my lifetime, people would have said in my early years of ministry, well, that's dated. 
but it's still a good book. And that's all changed. So what's changed? What has shifted? Well, in our starting point, the view of origin has shifted. People no longer assume God created. People no longer assume we need a prime mover. People don't assume that God has made everything. So the starting point or the, the view of origin has changed. They believe either that the universe itself has self-created or that matter was able to shift its substance from an inorganic state to an organic state. Secondly, their view of God has shifted. God was at one time viewed as a loving, caring being. He's now viewed as cruel, as manipulative. He's now viewed as restrictive, racist, enslaving. And so the view of God has changed. So the view of origin has changed. That starting point has shifted. Whenever we say about the origin of the universe and God's authority, it's questioned because they don't believe God exists. If they believe God exists, they don't believe he's the God of the Bible. He's a cruel tyrant who enslaves people. But then thirdly, if we talk about the Bible, their view of scripture has changed. It's moved from being dated and seen as maybe being archaic to actually being dangerous, something that should be avoided. So the starting point in evangelistic conversations have shifted. But secondly, the conversation's tone has also shifted. Listen to these three things. As Christians, we need to move from speaking to listening, from answering to asking, and from assuming to discerning. From speaking to listening, from answering to asking, and from assuming to discerning. Let me explain. From speaking to listening. At one time, we could dominate the conversation with what we believed, and others would hear the answer and make an assumption based on it. But we could dominate the conversation, and that is no longer true. We now need to be the listeners. Others need to dominate the conversation. We need to be able to hear what others believe. We need to be able to hear what they're articulating, hear their values, hear what matters to them. We need to be able to listen. Listening has become critical in evangelism. Secondly, from answering to asking. At one time, we would simply share what we believed the Bible said, what we believed about God. And for the most part, people would then maybe ask questions based on what we were saying or not saying. But we can no longer just simply come with our answers. We actually need to ask. We need to ask questions. We need to ask questions about what they think. We need to ask questions about what they understand. We need to ask questions about what they believe. We need to be asking questions. And then, like I already said, listening to the answers. And lastly, we need to move from assuming to discerning. At one time, we could assume certain things about people in a fairly westernized culture. But that has changed. That has entirely changed. With the rapid post-Christian movement of our day and the multiculturalism of our land, we need to be people who aren't assuming anything upon anyone. There's such an array of views and differences of opinion that we need to be listening to every conversation to discern how God would have us engage with that person in that conversation. How should we be approaching this conversation? So is there any biblical precedent for this? Like, is there anything we can look to in scripture 
Well, one of the techniques that Jesus had, which was fascinating, is he asked a lot of questions. When Jesus was with people, he would ask them questions. He would listen for their answers. He would pause so that they could think through what he had just asked them. Let me give a few examples. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus has entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. As he's entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, there's a man there with a shriveled hand. The Bible tells us that they were looking, the Pharisees, the leaders, were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to trap him. And on this day specifically, Jesus sees this man whose hand is shriveled. It's on the Sabbath where their law, not God's law, but their Pharisaical law, would have forbidden healing. Jesus calls the man up in front of everyone and he says this, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? He asks them a question. He wants them to think through what they believe and why. In Luke 13, when a group has gathered around Jesus, he looks at them and he says, what is the kingdom of God like? What should I compare it to? And I can imagine there he just pauses for a moment. What is God's kingdom like? What can I compare it to? And people start to think, what is God's kingdom like? What can I compare it to? Asking those questions the way Jesus did would cause people to ponder and to think. Another example, in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, a teacher, an expert in the law, comes to Jesus and says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers him and said, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He asks him two questions. The man's question is, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? The question in and of itself is odd because you can't do anything to inherit something. You inherit something because someone passes on and leaves you something. That's an inheritance. But the question comes to Jesus and Jesus says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He asked the expert in the law in his field of expertise to answer the question about what he knows about eternal life. And then the lawyer in wanting to justify himself out of the answer that's given asked the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to explain the parable of the Good Samaritan. But he starts by asking these questions. It happens when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, running to him. You find this in the Gospel of Mark. He comes running to Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds with a question. Why do you call me good? Then he makes a statement, there's no one good but God. Jesus starts by challenging this man's underlying assumption that Jesus is good. And Jesus here isn't saying he's not good, but he's saying, if you're gonna call me good, don't call me good because you think I'm a great teacher. Don't call me good because you think I'm a miracle worker. Don't call me good because you think I have followed God's law well. If you are gonna call me good, call me good because you know who I am. There's only one who's good, that's just God. God alone. So why do you call me good? You see, he knew that that rich man's, the rich young ruler's main issue in life was that rich young ruler thought he was good. Not just that he thought Jesus was good, he thought he himself was good. And Jesus wanted to show him there was no one good but God. And so over and over again, you can see this example in the gospels where Jesus asked 
penetrating questions, making people ponder and think, examine themselves, come to a place where they would offer, offer some type of explanation of what they believe and why they're thinking something. So where do we go from here? What does this mean for us? Well, firstly, I think it's important that each of us reflect on people who don't know Christ. We need to reflect on people that we know who don't know Christ. Maybe these are friends of yours. Maybe these are neighbors. Maybe these are family members. Maybe these are colleagues at work. Maybe there's some of the youth or members, individuals that we care for in our ministries and programs. But we want you to be able to think of people. The Lord wants you to think of people that you know that don't know Christ. He's brought them into your path specifically and purposely. No one has come into your path ever in life accidentally. God's brought them in with purpose and intention. So maybe it's a colleague at work. Maybe it's a neighbor who's beside you. Maybe it's a friend or a family member. Who is it that God's brought into your life purposely? Amy and I have lived in our house for almost 19 years. And so we've had, on the one side, we've had four neighbors. On the other side, we've had three neighbors that have gone through in the time that we have lived here on the two homes immediately beside us. And we've enjoyed each of the neighbors that have lived beside us. And we've prayed for them and prayed for them faithfully. The other morning I was cycling, I was, I was cycling out. The neighbors who lived with us beside us previously on the one side were walking down to the bayfront. I flipped my bike around, sat and talked to them for a few minutes, asked them how they were doing. And I thought to myself, man, you know what, Lord, you brought them across my path a number of times through COVID. Uh, there are a couple in their mid sixties, uh, approaching 70. Amy and I should just have them over this summer. They've moved just around the corner into one of the condos and we should have them over. We've been praying for them. Lord, let's just have them over. The Lord keeps bringing them to mind. Right? You just start praying for these people. Lord, these are the people you've put into our life. A couple of years ago, from the first family that had lived beside us, who lived there a number of years, I lived there and raised their kids there for a couple of decades. I was walking down James Street to Amy's business, and I was, I was walking down the street. I bumped into uh, the father of the family, asked him how he was doing. We prayed for them. I, I officiated their daughter's wedding. And uh, he was like, not that good, Dwayne. And I found out he had a terminal brain cancer and he was passing on. And so we prayed for open doors into their lives from there. We prayed for God to just powerfully move into their lives. I think of my own sister, her and her family, great, great family. Um, my brother-in-law would do anything for us, right? My sister would do anything for us. Their daughter, our niece is incredible, but not believers. And so what does that mean for us? What does that look like? One of the ways that you can engage in conversation with people to transition is ask them their story. Ask them a bit about who they are. You might know it, you might think you know, but ask them some specifics. Ask them some things that you may not know. Ask them about things that they're going through. And then tell them your story and specifically where you've seen God at work in your story. Naturally, not unnaturally, explain how you see God in your everyday movements in life. Who he is, what he's up to, why he's at work there. And just as they'll talk about some things that are natural to their story, sports, hobbies, family, friends. God should be natural in our stories because isn't he the biggest part of our life? The Lord himself, God Almighty, the spirit who's in us. And we should be talking about him with others naturally. So how else do we move forward? Well, we prayerfully depend on the Holy Spirit. Prayerfully depend on the Holy Spirit. Listen to this from John 16. When he comes, that's Jesus speaking about the Holy Spirit. This is verse eight. 
When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he says in verse 9, about sin because people do not believe in me. He says, when the Spirit of God comes, one of his, uh, one of the things that is going to characterize the Spirit of God being here is he's going to convict people of sin. And Jesus explains why. What's he say? Because people do not believe in me. He wants people, the Spirit of God wants people to come under such conviction of their sin that they'd realize that the only thing they can do with their sin is turn to a Savior. That Savior is Jesus. Believe in him. Believe in him. And so one of the things we should be praying for all of our unbelieving friends is, Spirit of God, would you bring such conviction in their life that they'd realize their need for a Savior? Spirit of God, would you bring such conviction to them that they'd realize that they need Jesus, that they would believe on Him and trust Him and Him alone for eternal life? Do you pray that prayer? Do you pray that prayer for your non-believing friends? Oh God, would you open a door into their life? Oh God, Spirit of God, would your convicting presence Allow them to see that the only way they can escape their guilt and their sin is by way of Jesus Christ, who's paid their penalty as he's paid mine on the cross for their sin. Secondly, Paul talks about the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2 and following. I resolved while I was with you to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul said, I only talked about Jesus. I came with fear and weakness and trembling. And my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but rather with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Salvation comes from the Lord. It's God's gift. We can't save anyone. We can't convict any heart, but God does and God can. And that's why Paul says, my preaching, my explanation of the gospel was with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Because if someone's faith rests on my explanation of faith, then someone's gonna come and argue in a better way than I can. If I argue someone into the kingdom, someone can come and argue them out of the kingdom. But when God's spirit invades a life, when his convicting power brings someone under the conviction, his conviction, knowing that they need a savior and they believe on Jesus, no one can out-argue that. That's not an argument, that's an experience. And that experience is done by the Spirit of God himself granting people life in Jesus. And so our prayer is, oh, with demonstration of the Spirit's power. Spirit, would you come with your convicting presence and lead people to their need of a Savior? Would you do so in such a way that it would be by your power and not by my persuasive words that people would be saved? And then Colossians 4, 2 to 6, 2 to 4, sorry. Devote yourselves to prayer, be watchful and thankful. Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we can proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I can proclaim it clearly the way I should. Paul says, be devoted, give yourself completely to this thing, to prayer. And then be watchful. Once you've prayed, you're not done when you say amen. Amen is just the start. Pray and then watch. Watch for what? Watch for the answers to the prayers you've just prayed. Watch for open doors into your family's life. Watch for open doors into your neighbor's life. Watch for open doors into your colleague's life at work. Watch for open doors into your neighbor's life. Watch for open doors into the lives of the people in the programs and the ministries that we run. Watch for open doors into the neighbors who will live at 500 James. 
watch for open doors and be thankful when God opens them. And then he says, pray that I can proclaim the gospel clearly as I should. Man, it's the Apostle Paul who by this point has written a whole portion of the New Testament and has articulated the gospel more clearly than anyone but Jesus himself. If the Apostle Paul is asking for prayer, who's planted several churches at this time, if he's asking for prayer to proclaim the gospel clearly, oh, do we need prayer to proclaim the gospel clearly. In our community groups, in our covenant groups, in our ministry teams, we should all be praying when someone says, you know, it's my dad, he's not a believer. It's my neighbor, they're not a believer. It's my colleague at work who's not a believer. We should be praying for him or her. Oh God, would you open a door and would you allow them to proclaim the mystery of Christ clearly? Oh, that we're praying for open doors, that we're praying for dependence on the Holy Spirit, that we're asking God's Spirit to bring his convicting power so that people will be led to their need of a savior. Father's Day today, and so I want to talk to dads specifically just for one moment. Dads, do you pray this for your kids? Are you praying God's convicting presence and power upon your children so that they will realize their need for a Savior? Are you praying for open doors? And when God opens those doors, do you take the chance to explain the hope you have in Christ with your unsaved children? Dads, are you doing this? It's, it's not anyone else's responsibility. It's not your pastor's responsibility, though I'm praying God will grant me open doors into your kids' lives. It's not our youth pastor's responsibility, though I'm praying God will open up doors for Derek into their lives. It's not Diana Crosby, our children's ministry director's responsibility, or Deanna Spolster, who's working with her. It's not their responsibility, or Pastor Paul. It's none of our responsibilities. It's your responsibilities. Though all of us are also praying for open doors in their lives, but it is your predominant responsibility. God has placed you in their lives purposely and intentionally. Oh, that you would be praying for them. Oh, that you would be praying for open doors. Oh, that you would be praying for the Spirit's conviction that you would be in prayer. And then when God opens the door, you would declare the gospel clearly as you should. I've been in a whole number of conversations about our building recently. Numbers of non-Christians have called us about our building. And as they've called about the building, They've asked me all kinds of questions about why a church would put housing in it, about passive house and the environmental footprint, all kinds of questions like this. In a number of these conversations, the Lord has just opened a number of doors. I've asked them questions, they've asked me questions. And one conversation recently, they were asking about the whole passive house and the environmental footprint. And I talked about creation care, what it means that we believe that God has created everything. And as believers, that we believe that caring for God's creation is one of our preeminent calls. They paused for a moment. They said, I've never, never heard that before. I said, why is the environment so important to you? And they explained why it was so important to them. And, and I said, man, I really respect and honor that, but that's why it's important to us. And as we continue to talk about why we care for the disenfranchised and why we love on the poor, at the end of the conversation, they said this to me. They said, today you've challenged my faith. I said, in what way? How, how have I challenged your faith? They said, I have just always assumed that Christians are narrow-minded, racist, and, uh, and restrictive. And I said, today, you've been proving the very opposite of these things. I actually thought Christians were to blame for the environmental mess. I didn't know there were Christians out there who cared so much for the environment. And, uh, and as we began to talk, I just said to the person, tell me what you think about God. And they began to explain what they think. In another conversation recently, again, I was asked about my leadership with a number of non-Christians and why consensus was so important to me. 
And as we were sitting there talking, I flipped the question around and said, well, is it important to you? What do you think about consensus? And as each person in the room shared, it came back to me and I said, well, here's, here's why I believe consensus is important. I said, I believe that every person has been created in the image and likeness of God. And I believe because of that, there is inherent worth and value in every person. And the room was just really quiet. And I said, I appreciate all the answers that everyone's given here, but I believe if God's created us and we're the pinnacle of his creation, that that means that the ultimate worth that he's granted us is inherent in every human being, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they're from, regardless of their custom, regardless of their culture, regardless of their language. And so then consensus becomes really important to me because I believe I have something to learn from them, something to listen to them for, something to grow from. And we engaged in this conversation for several minutes about what that meant and why it was. You want what the Lord is doing in your life to just naturally come out to others. Jesus did that, didn't he? He's with Nicodemus, Nicodemus the Pharisee, a religious leader of religious leaders. He was a leader in the Sanhedrin. And Nicodemus has come to him at night and as they're engaged in question, Nicodemus finally says, how can this be? Didn't just, Jesus didn't just leave him in questions when he was asking, how can this be? He was asking, how can I be born again? And Jesus says this, the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. He's talking about how he'll one day be on the cross. And then he says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him will not perish, will not die, but will have eternal life. Jesus didn't leave any ambiguity there. He proclaimed the truth. He explained what he believed and he did so clearly. Jesus is with the woman at the well. She finally says, engage in their conversation. I know what you're talking about. I know that Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain all of this to everyone. And Jesus looks at her and says, I who speak to you am he. He didn't just end her with some type of ambiguity, have her wondering who he was. He said, no, me right here who's sitting here, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. She leaves her water jar behind. She runs into the town to the very people she's been afraid to talk to. And she says, come see this man. He's known everything about me before I told him, come see him. This is the Messiah. He sometimes has a hard word to the Pharisees. At one point he says, the reason you can't hear what God is saying is because you don't belong to God. He says the truth to them. The reason you can't hear God's voice is you don't belong to him. To Martha, whose brother Lazarus has just died and Jesus has come to raise him to life again. When he meets Martha, he says to her, what? I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. He boldly, clearly proclaims the truth. So what does this mean? Where do we start? Well, I think we start understanding that the world's at a very different place. What they believe about the origin of the universe, their views on God, views on scripture, very different now than it was 25 years ago. We have to understand that the conversations have to have a whole different tone to them. We need to do more listening than speaking. We need to do more asking than answering. We need to do discerning more than assuming. And then we need to be able to ask great questions. 
And as we do so, we're listening for the answers, praying the whole time that God's spirit will allow us, as he opens a door, to be able to proclaim the gospel clearly. And then this is really important. As we pray and pray and pray, asking, listening, discerning, when God opens those doors, we still need to proclaim. Because God's given us the truth, because he is the answer, because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, because anyone, anywhere, anytime, any place who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. So God, use us in the lives of the people around us who don't know you, our colleagues at work, our friends, our family, our neighbors. God, use us in their lives. Help us to ask questions, to discern as we're listening to answers. And when you open doors to boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel for their salvation, your glory, and our good, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.